Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Seesaunt. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seesaw. Hi, everybody, and welcome to uh, the newest episode of the Third Fridays podcast. Uh, We are alive and well kicking into the summer. Uh, You know, and this may be something to commemorate, but uh, I don't know how many more episodes we'll be able to do from the kill room as we speak. Uh, A lot of construction going on here on our premises. This is very exciting as we expand and continue to grow. Uh, But my name is Christian Sison, and my guest today is uh, Senior Associate uh, and Team Leader Joseph Melchioni. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be back in the kill room, whether it's the last time or, or not. Um, Also, I want to say congratulations. I don't know if you're aware, Christian. This is your 50th episode of Third Friday Friday Podcast, and I think that that's quite a milestone. So congratulations to you for that. Well, uh, I wasn't aware until you had briefed me on it before we talked about it, Uh, so I didn't have anything planned, but I guess I could have tried to uh, steal that kind of mantra by saying that you were worthy of being the 50th episode guest, the anniversary guest. Uh, but nonetheless, I think today's topic is is certainly up your alley as a, a man of uh, intense preparation, uh, as a litigator uh, needs to be. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, everybody, is uh, kind of like the finer points of a deposition, uh, and specifically with a treating doctor. I think uh, you know, direct examination of an IME, redirect. Uh, you're 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 making sure that you know nothing truly bad happens. But the real challenge is cross examination of the treating physician in order to get the concessions that you need. Uh, and I think you know something that you're very skilled at. Uh, you know, can we use different things, different case updates? To really enhance our skills, make them even better. There's always room for improvement, even with everybody. Uh, so, maybe we'll start there from the deposition aspect. You know, why do we need them? Uh, what are the most common types of depositions that we face, and how do we use them to get good results for clients? Okay. Yes. Well, depositions I think are ex- an extremely important part of what we do. Um, we do depositions for a wide variety of reasons, whether develop the record regarding a claimant's further causally related disability, whether uh, it be the medical necessity of a requested treatment, or permanency. I think those are probably three of the most common and most important uh, depositions we do. Um, they're important because it's our opportunity to kind of either poke holes in the treating doctor's opinion or impugn his or her credibility. Uh, using their own reports. And it's very important to our defense because we're looking either to impugn their uh, credibility as as far as development of the record or get their reports precluded on a procedural ground. So you want to make sure that you're very, very prepared for these depositions because there's a wide landscape of things you want to be aware of um, and because there's multiple opportunities to defend a case. And kind of the backdrop of that linking towards Uh, the case that we're going to talk about today is what would happen if we don't cross-examine these doctors, right? Like what, what would, if we don't cross-examine a treating doctor on any issue, 
What does the law judge do with that report? Right. Well, if we don't cross-examine the claimant's doctor, then those those opinions are at risk of coming in uncontroverted. And uh, the way the laws and the presumptions are written in New York workers' compensation laws, you're well aware, I think that when you're balancing the equities, the light is going to be cast most favorably towards the claimant and thus the claimant's consultants. So therefore, it's critically important that we don't miss that opportunity to impugn the credibility and or the doctor's methods um, or procedural safeguards. So um, they're critically important for that reason. Good use of the word consultant there, too. I think a lot of times even people that are very experienced in the industry will think of the claimant's doctor as almost represented by their attorney as well, which we'll kind of delve into and and explore the differences between. Uh, And even furthering that backdrop, right, we know that a lot of these claimants' attorney firms have relationships with the doctor's offices, whether it be referral one way or the other. They're they're usually – the same types of firms associated with the same types of doctors based on the region, where they're located, where the claimant's located, things like that. Would you you agree or disagree? I agree 100%. You see many firms that are linked with particular doctors based upon whether it's an upstate case, whether it's a New York City case. Um, That's good and bad. It's it's bad for us because these doctors become very – uh, accomplished at knowing how to to be deposed, they know how to get out of sticky situations. They know exactly what the board wants them to say. It's good for us because through the practice and experience of deposing these doctors over and over, we also get to know not only the weaknesses in their deposition skills, but also uh, common mistakes that are being made by their practice in their reports. So, um, I guess it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, and I think I think that's definitely true. I and I look at you know the la- the, the last two responses you gave one. Uh, the, the medical evidence comes in uncontroverted if we don't use our cross-examination as a weapon. And two, the backdrop of the relationship between claimant's attorney firms and the doctor's offices. Doctors are going to be incentivized in more ways than one to write reports that aren't truly indicative of the claimant's status. When we think about what a temporary total disability is or what it really means to say someone has lost 40% loss of use of their arm. They're incentivized to create these high numbers to gain referrals, continue that relationship, but also from the perspective of not having that cross-examination weapon, you know, a 100 versus a 50, we expect the claimant's attorney to request a 75% compromise when really taking that cross-examination weapon will actually find out that the high anchor point's not the 100% or the 40% loss of use. It's actually a bit lower. And what I've seen over the years is even making that initial outreach to litigate can result in a better compromise because otherwise speaking, some clients come and say, well, if we continue to compromise on these rates, doesn't it continue this incentivization for a doctor to manufacture these high anchor points, the 45% slews, the 60% slews, just to come at a compromise of a lower number. Do you see that in some of your cases as well? I I absolutely do. And we see it, I guess, most prominently when we we go into a hearing and we do press for litigation. And suddenly after that hearing, we'll get that more often than not, we'll get that subsequent communication from the claimant's attorney willing to stipulate because they know that if we go into a deposition, an accomplished attorney, an experienced attorney will know 
their way around the, the medical treatment guidelines, and they'll be comfortable deposing a doctor. And the doctor during a deposition is usually um, compromised because there, there's a push and pull between, one, their role in this deposition – as you said, they may have an incentive to inflate a particular opinion in order to re- maintain that business, um, but also in their medical ethics. So if I'm going to cross-examine a doctor and say, doctor, this is your medical opinion. Uh, you note uh, that the claimant has improved range of motion over the past five examinations. You say that the claimant's uh, pharmacological treatment has been successful. You say that the claimant's pain level has improved, right, yet right. you're maintaining a total disability. Can you explain that? Right. And and a, a doctor who cares about legal ethics, I mean, medical ethics, will more likely than not say, you know, you're right. I, I wrote that he's totally or she's totally disabled from their his or her job, but in reality, it's more like a 75 or 70% disability because they don't want to be on the record saying something contradictory or something that would compromise their ethics. Right. And I think about, you know, a couple of years ago when the board undertook this uh, immense investigation into IMEs, right? Uh, you know, which doctors are spending actual time at their examinations they are actually reviewing the treatment records versus ones that are not. And just like claimants' doctors, there are good IME doctors, there are bad ones. But where, were, where was the investigation into the claimants' doctors that consistently write 100% for, like, pinky finger injuries, right? Like the, the shoulder injuries where, like, maybe your shoulder has some problems, but you can still walk, you can still sit and stand. Uh, this this idea or the glamorization of a temporary total disability actually creates the need for litigation. Otherwise, like you said, it's going to bring those reports in uncontroverted. Right. So, uh, you know, we talked about this case uh, a little bit uh, because it was just decided recently. It's a, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, Gutermout mm-hmm. versus County of Oswego uh, decided May 27th of this year, uh, and you know, I thought of you uh, when I saw this case because uh, I know your uh, preparation skills for treating doctors uh, is, you know, is not beaten by anyone, right? Uh, I think that you have a really good skill in preparing for these types of proceedings. So uh, when we talked about this case, what, what kind of stood out to you as far as things to summarize for our audience here today to get them up to speed with where we are. Sure. Um, thank you for the compliment. I'll always accept the compliment when they're uh, offered. Um, this is an interesting case because it's a death case. Uh, the stakes are high. The exposure is high. So although all of the cases we handle are of paramount importance, of course we're going to stop on our tracks and really look at these cases that have extremely high exposure. So this is a death case. Um, so right off the bat, there's a red flag that there's – we want to look at this case from all angles as from a defense perspective. Um, what's interesting about this case is uh, this is a death case that was brought by a decedent. The claimant is a decedent. And uh, both the IME consultant and the treating doctor uh, issued reports and testified that the injuries sustained that resulted in the uh, person's death were causally related to the person's employment. So uh, – you know, just at the get-go of this case, from a medical standpoint, um, not necessarily from a legal standpoint yet, but from a medical standpoint, uh, it's looking like this case is compensable. Um, but what ends up happening is, through the, through the process of the depositions, it was uncovered that the claimant's attorney had extensive amounts of ex parte communications with both the IME doctor and the treating doctor. Uh, I think in the case of the IME doctor, the claimant's attorney actually 
met with the doctor, spent over an hour reviewing the records and discussing the substance of the deposition that was going to occur subsequent to that. And it was not done with the knowledge of the other attorney, the defense attorney or the court or anyone. And just to interrupt you uh, very quickly, when we say ex parte, right, is exactly what you just mentioned, right? Like Mm -hmm. the, the conversation or the communication without the awareness of your adversary uh, and that's what we mean by ex parte. But Correct. Yeah, please continue. So um, in this, it w- after the depositions had taken place um, and the testimony uh, conducted, uh, it was discovered that the claimant's attorney had a great deal of ex parte communication with both consultants, well, both the treating doctor and the IME consultant, regarding not only the substance of the case, but they went through records, they went through evidence, and they discussed what was going to be discussed at the depositions outside of the presence of the other attorney. Right. Uh, so at the subsequent trial, the defense raised the issue that this, there was an ex parte communication. And under, I think there's a, there's work, it's workers' compensation law, section 13A, there's uh, section 137. And I think the board in 2003 issued a, a subject directive specifically noting that if there's any type of ex parte communication, all parties must immediately be made aware. Right. Wasn't the case in this situation. That issue was raised, and the board uh, precluded the testimony and the medical evidence of both doctors, and it resulted in the disallowance of the case because without proper medical to support causation, the case couldn't go forward. That's an incredible outcome sure. given the fact that, you know, with your review of the facts, you had kind of trended towards thinking that this case was compensable. And an attorney action on the other side created an entirely opposite result. So, I mean, I'm almost thinking for for the estate here, it's very rare that a defense attorney, especially one like me, is going to be thinking about how they're feeling on the other side. But, you know, I see that case, and and you do have to feel a little bit for the estate, given that, you know, someone like you was looking at this case and saying, you know what, this is a compensable death claim. Why did they have to go ahead mm-hmm. and add all these cherries on top when the Sunday was just as tasty without it? Right, right. But, I mean, that's why we have procedural safeguards. The law is the law for a reason. It's to protect the interest not only of the claimants but also of the carriers. I mean, this is a high-exposure case. And uh, we don't know what that claimant's attorney discussed with those uh, doctors. They could have told him what to say. He could have, could have influenced their opinions in a certain way um, that – that uh, kind of affected the overall facts of the case. So although I do feel for the estate, I do have a respect for the rule of law. And these rules, these statutes, and these directives exist for a reason. And it's to protect the interests of all parties. You probably also could say you wouldn't be able to determine if uh, that particular attorney or firm consulted with the the practicing providers before the reports were even filed. Right, exactly. Um, So, you know, when we talk about this, uh, you know, I always want to look to, uh, you know, the next step or how we apply it to to our practice. You know, and and I think that there are two different ways. One is, you know, how do we prepare for a cross-examination of a treating doctor? And two, like, how do we advise our clients to use this and implement into their own practice? you know, habits and routines when securing IMEs, when picking the right, uh, you know, doctor? What what types of things jump out at you as far as things that we can use to apply? Well, from a practitioner's perspective, I think it's important 
Um, sometimes it's the little questions that matter. Uh, it's the things that we do every single day without thinking that although it takes a second to ask the question and 9.9 times out of 10, we're going to get not the answer we want, but it's that one-tenth of 1% chance that when we do get that affirmative answer, that could make a, a, a big difference in the case. So what I'm referring to is, in my practice, I try to start every deposition of a treating doctor with two questions. First, I say, doctor, can you please tell me how you prepare for this deposition? Uh, the doctor's usually stymied. Well, well, what do you mean? How did I prepare? I didn't, either they say I didn't do anything, or they say I reviewed my reports. Okay, great. Next, I always ask question number two. Um, did you speak with anyone about the substance of this deposition outside of your staff regarding logistics prior to today or today um, at all? And again, nine times out of ten, no, I didn't speak to anyone. Just my secretary who told me to be available at this time. But uh, I've ha- I have had instances where uh, the doctor will say, yeah, I had a conversation with the claimant's attorney yesterday over coffee. <laughs> and the doctor thinks nothing of it, not aware of what those rules are. And suddenly then we may have a defense that we didn't have before. Right. I think it's, you know, leaning on that habit, you know, maybe after deposition and deposition and deposition, you don't get the answer you want. Like, I think it's very human to say, you know what, that question's not important. But sticking with the plan has has always been, you know, one of our tenets. And I think that, you know, like you said, if you get that one response, doesn't it make all of them worth it? Right, because right. there's no way for us to know beforehand what happened. There's no way. If they're having right. an ex parte communication, by the very nature, we're not going to know about it or have any evidence. So th- we're creating that evidence if it exists. It's an innocuous question, and it kind of makes sense to start a deposition that way. So it doesn't hurt to ask, and the, the risk is well worth the reward. Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting. I think maybe the question I have is, is that a question you confront the claimant's doctor on voir dire? What, you know, when I say voir dire, we mean assessing the qualifications and the, the expert uh, ability of a doctor to be a witness in the case? Or is, do you use that uh, for, you know, your substantive cross-examination? What do you think is, is better? What do you use? Uh, to me, I, personally, I don't think it matters. I, okay. I start the substantive aspect of the cross-examination that way. Uh, I, I stick the voir dire to the qualifications or right. practice affiliations. I feel like the, the nature of the question is more geared towards their preparation for the substance of the deposition and in their preparation for that deposition, what went into that. So I always start the substantive aspect of my cross-examination with those two questions. I, I, okay. res- I restrict voir dire to simply qualifications. That's Actually, the more that I think about it, what you were saying before about them being caught off guard, they've, they're probably going through 10, 15, uh, maybe even 30 minutes uh, of direct examination where they're just reading their reports into the record, right? Mm-hmm. Claimants, attorneys asking them questions, the good things that are contained in the report. And then for them to kind of be on that path and that routine of just talking, 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 and then you kind of just throw it in there, like how did you prepare, who did you speak to, that is probably better uh, substance-wise for a judge to review. I was just thinking that right now, whereas if you put it in the voir dire, even though you say it doesn't matter, if you ask it on voir dire, it almost gets lost because it gets followed by the direct examination. So it might actually have less of an effect to put it on board here. That's you might a be re- right. That's a re- I didn't think of it that way, but that's really important because 
uh, I'm, if you put it at the beginning of the substantive cross-examination, I have the opportunity to further explore it, whereas voir dire has a natural end. Right, right. So you're right. If, if it ends the voir dire questioning, then I'm giving the, cl- the claimant's attorney a, a, an ability to rehabilitate it, yeah. whereas on cross, I, and this is how it actually happens. Oh, you spoke to the, to the, to, to the claimant's attorney. When? How? What did you speak about? And it naturally flows into my ability to cross-examine without giving the claimant's attorney an opportunity to object because it's not time for cross-examination or to rehabilitate during direct. So I didn't think of it that way, but, you know, that, that's another reason to uh, do it there. It's and one of, the, one of the things I love is, you know, it's, it's a foundation question, right? Or it's a, uh, a basis question because as attorneys – you know, we do our best with our experience with a particular type of injury. You know, we do have resources to determine, like, you know, how this type of injury can lead to this type of disability or this type of diagnostic test finding, and even using the permanency guidelines to apply it in that way too. But sometimes attacking the foundation of a doctor's report creates a better result because I can't reasonably go toe-to-toe with a doctor on medical knowledge, right? right? I, it's, even if I did have all those facts, I'm still an attorney trying to ask a doctor questions about the doctor's expertise or, or, or the doctor's field. If I can attack the foundation, right, and sometimes we think of that as history of the accident or different evidentiary pieces like what a claimant testifies to at trial, it's a, a little bit similar to what you're talking about with you know, the preparation and the ex parte communication, if you're attacking and you're asking those types of questions, it becomes less about what's contained in the report, but really this idea that nothing in the report can be taken as read. Very important. I think that especially the more experienced doctors are very uh, good at knowing how to talk their way through a deposition. If you get a doctor that's been doing workers' compensation uh, cases for years, they're going to be very good at being able to rehabilitate their own uh, testimony, and they'll quickly dive deep into medical jargon to confuse things. But I think that you bring up a very good point that most of the time when we're scoring points to impugn credibility, it's not so much on uh, medical testimony. It is. I don't want to confuse the issue. We, we do win on that. But I'd say in my experience, I am scoring points on impugning the credibility of a treating doctor more so when I'm saying, doctor, do you review all of your reports for their submission to the board? Yes. Well, that's after I ask seven questions that point out that there were numerous clerical errors in the report or misstatements of fact, um, because that's uncontroverted, and that's something where I'm on par with the doctor. And it doesn't then, in that situation, the doctor cannot just hide behind medical jargon and confuse the situation. Judges don't want to be the arbiter of a medical opinion. They just want to find one doctor more credible than the other, and they're already predisposed to finding claimants doctors more credible. So I think that's an important point as well. So we, we go through, you know, this type of, let's say, this deposition, and we, we elicit this, con, this concession, right, that I spoke to uh, the claimant's attorney for an hour before the deposition, or we exchange emails about what needs to be discussed, whatever the ex parte communication is, and you learn about it on deposition. Now, uh, you know, I know uh, you're a very big summations memo of law, like, you know, kind of like encapsulate your argument in writing uh, type of attorney, which I really appreciate. Let's say you get this concession, like whether it's in a brief or whether you're now arguing for an oral summation in front of a judge. What is the priority of this type of concession? Is it the most important thing? Is it um, you know something in the middle? Is it not that important? Where would you assess this type of concession as far as 
you know, the argument you're going to be making and prioritizing it before the law judge? Um, I think, well, first and foremost, from a procedural aspect, I, in the deposition itself, we're going to proceed with the deposition because that's just the way it goes. Um, I would note my exception on the record during the deposition to any further testimony so that okay, my, good point, my yes. argument is preserved on the record for both the judge and for all parties to see. Then I will uh, kind of formulate my argument in a summation brief or memo of law prior to, the, to whatever the substantive issues of the, the subsequent trial are. And to answer your question, I would make it the first priority because I'm going to want to get that testimony and or records precluded on a procedural ground before we even get to substance. Because if we get to substance, like we said before, more likely than not, the equities are going to be balanced in favor of the claimant's consultant, or it becomes a medical issue where no matter what I do, the judge is going to make a decision as to which uh, consultant or which medical professional was more credible. So what I would do is I would first and foremost say, judge, you can't consider this doctor's opinion no matter what. I don't care how sound or how credible you believe because there are multiple statutes that say that ex parte communications or even, here's a distinction, even the appearance of an, right. of a, of an influence through ex parte communication um, are grounds to have that record and subsequent testimony precluded. Then I would say in the alternative, you know, if the law judge determines that or the board determines that uh, we're not going to preclude on those grounds, I will make the substantive argument based upon the medicals. And then uh, my records develop so I can take it to the full board or even the third department, depending upon how strong my argument is. In the case we talked about before, the board affirmed it, the full board affirmed it, and then the third department affirmed it. So obviously, uh, right up the ladder, um, the board and the judiciary feel as if these are very important statutes and very important safeguards. So we're going to win on those defenses if it's clear and concise. Right. And I think also the recency effect of a decision like this, where uh, you know, even stating some of the things that you're pulling out of it, right? Maybe it's open to uh, interpretation in some effects, but to say that there's a recency effect of having this rule being affirmed, you know, on May 27th, the third department continues to believe that this is a paramount issue, even when a claim is trending towards compensability. A death claim that was probably going to be compensable mm-hmm. was disallowed because the claimant's attorney had ex parte communication. Now we can kind of use this in new cases, in new briefs, not because it's a new rule, but of that recency effect, the recency bias that psychologically people like to hear. It's like, you know, judge, it was on May 27th. This is still a thing. And that means you have to get a disallowance. You have to preclude the claimant's uh, reports here because this isn't the way it should be, right? right? This emphasis on the law being that procedural safeguard. I love that uh, term that you started out with as almost like this protective barrier over what should be. Right. Anytime we're arguing to the board, a law judge, the board panel, or the third department, and we can say, listen, you created these laws to protect people's interests, to protect parties' interests. Now you have to enforce them. Right. And right, here's right. an example. If you're going to enforce it in a death case that was most likely compensable, then anything that comes prior to that, you, without a doubt, not only should you apply, you have to apply. Right. It actually emphasizes your uh, procedural argument when it comes to summation, prioritizing this issue first, because the idea of the substance not even mattering. Right because you have a procedural issue has always been a good tenant for a defense attorney to start out right. with. Because it's, when you're doing the he said, she said, you're almost stuck, right. right? You really need those concessions that you can't guarantee you're going to get. You know, as a man who's been deposing, uh, treating doctors for as long as you have, 
I'm sure you've had treating doctors go in there and be like, you know what? I got you, Mr. Melchioni. I'm like, this is my report. It stands on it on its face. The, you know, the weight of it is better than your IME. And if I testify well, like you're out. So sometimes you do need these procedural right. uh, avenues to help you. Right. And if we can say that it's fruit of the poisonous tree, um, oh, then yeah, bringing those law oh, school God. terms. I, I, you know, <laughs> I've been wanting since law school to be able to use that. And I'm thinking here, here's my opportunity. <laughs> right. Because truthfully, like you said, we're not medical professionals, but we're legal professionals. So right, our right. job is to make sure that the statutes that are enacted to protect our, our clients' interests are being appropriately applied. So that's where we do have the edge. So like I said, you don't, we shouldn't be making these arguments. We must be making these arguments. Right. So. Good, good, good uh, way to kind of close that part. Uh, but as we talk about what we want to tell our clients to do, right, because this is, you know, for them seeing this kind of uh, issue come up with a claimant's doctor, uh, it's helpful to the endpoint of the cases, but it is theater for them because they don't affect the claimant's doctor's reports. What they do have a role in is setting up independent medical examinations and Section 137 and 13 to make sure the communication flows freely. So what type of tips do you have for employers and carriers to uh, move or use this case to emphasize good habits and routines? Well, first and foremost, if it comes to our attention that certain doctors are inclined to have ex parte communications with attorneys, we want to stay away from those consultants by any means necessary. That's true. Right. And it's a red flag for our files if we see a claimant's doctor that we know has done this in the past. We want to make sure we're asking those questions. I think it's best practice to ask the question on any deposition for the reasons we already discussed, but particularly if we see doctors that have done this. Next, we also want to let our clients know that it's important to approve when we recommend appealing on issues that involve ex parte communications because there's a good chance we're going to win. It's an aggressive tactic. Um, sometimes when you're at permanency, you just want the case to be over. But it's very important that we could win on this argument, and it's something we should be appealing. And um, uh, the third was um, maybe like use – Using like you know the the communication and the questions right like oh, that's because right. Yep. right like we had discussed this too where yeah. you know you've had cases where judges and board panels don't like the particular type of question right. that's being asked of a doctor even though it seems neutral right it kind of tilts in a way right that, that's and, a great point yeah, we, that is we talk about that and trying to accomplish the same goal but also you know, preserving all possible options and increasing the chance of success. So, like, you know, what's a good example of a question that, you know, a carrier adjuster uh, should not be asking an IME doctor in your experience? No, that's, that's a great point because, like I said before, under Workers' Compensation Law 13A, it's not just the ex parte communication. It's also the appearance of impropriety or the appearance that a party is trying to influence the uh, medical opinion of a professional. So very commonly what we do or clients do on their own is they draft IME cover letters that enumerate a list of questions that they want their consultant to answer. Uh, and it's very important that clients, whether it be they direct us to draft those questions or they're, direct, they're drafting those questions themselves, to make sure that the questions are vague enough to allow for, one, the doctor's opinion to be free from any bias or any appearance of impropriety, but also it's not an overreach. Uh, I, I know I've, I've come into the knowledge of a particular case where a carrier uh, was seeking a permanency opinion with respect to um, CRPS, and it could be a little confusing. Uh, it's a confusing kind of 
condition. Um, and in the IME cover letter, they specifically wrote, please refer to the New York State Permanency Guidelines page, whatever, 85, chapter 16.1 for pain, and please provide <laughs> your opinion with respect to permanency consistent with this page and this number. And the very uh, perceptive uh, claimant's attorney raised the issue that this is an overreach. They were The carrier was influencing the opinion of the medical doctor. We don't know if the consultant would have used the guidelines appropriately. And in that situation, the uh, IME's report was precluded because the board determined it was uh, an overreach. It was an, the appearance of the carrier trying to influence the medical opinion of the doctor. Yeah, you know, and I look at it too because there is – it's almost the appearance of it as opposed to the impropriety itself because I, I, I don't believe that that was improper – but it's the appearance of it that, that has that little percentage risk attached to it. That I think if we tweak the question or ask it in a way that uses the doctor's medical expertise in a way that still allows us to use our legal expertise and say, well, that's a medical opinion, and our job is to attach that to the legal ramifications of the case. I think if we can separate those, right, that's right. where we want to head because certainly uh, – there are issues that doctors don't know about, right? Like, for example, if you take testimony of the claimant at trial, that is an evidentiary piece of information that is good for every doctor to hear, whether it's claimant or IME. Uh, so sometimes that needs to be developed, but there is a little bit of risk, uh, you know, attenuated with phrasing it in a certain way. I think that we can always accomplish that type of goal by being careful with the verbiage. Right. right, and I'd rather be, um, I'd rather be, I'd rather take the safe route and make the questions vague. If we don't get the answer we want, we didn't cross any lines. No one can make that argument against us. We could always request clarification. Right. There are other know. ways to point the doctor or nudge the doctor in a particular di- direction without affirmatively saying do this and putting that report and testimony at risk of being precluded and using these the same statutes we were talking about used to defend the claim against us. We don't want to provide them with any ammunition to use these same statutes against our own consultant. Okay. So, yeah, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot to unpack here, but it does really reinforce the process, right? Uh, Keep at it, even though something may not work 99% of the time. Sometimes you almost link it to work status testimony at, at a normal accepted claim. Like, are you working? You know, most of the time they're not working, and it's because of the accident. But you get that one by saying, oh, yeah, I started this new job right. a week ago. And you can get, you know, lowered exposure based on tactics that are still tried and true. You know, I think it's it's very important here that we always want to be on the cutting edge of different things that we apply and use them to improve our practice. But we're not forgetting, you know, the tried and true ways of winning. Right. Uh, so, um I think that's a good, important takeaway. Now, uh, before we went on, I did ask you, like, what was the last time that you were a guest on this show? And you mentioned it was mock trial last year around. So uh, that was at a time where – did we do it virtually because of COVID-19? No, no, no. Did this was before year? COVID-19. This was through that. We oh, did it right here in this oh, kill room. Okay, we may before. have even been christening the kill room, if I remember correctly, because <laughs> I think that's what I said at the last time I was – on the show, but uh, no, it was here. It was in person, and we had everybody crowded in this room. It was just prior to COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, that makes more sense because last year, if it wasn't virtual, it would have been very difficult to get all those people in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as 
uh, co-chair or the the winner from the previous iteration, uh, you were able to uh, participate in uh, you know the mock pod, and we would give trivia questions and, and ask the competitors uh, to present like almost an oral appeal, uh, and. Uh, I'm only using to say because we're in this space again, right, heading towards the finals of the mock trial competition, um, if the competitors themselves listen to this podcast, what kind of words of wisdom do you have as a former champion of the program to to guide them towards, uh, you know, a good result? Well, I have been um, a supporter of the mock trial program since it started. I, I feel like it was a great idea when it was brought up in 2017, 18. Uh, I had a wonderful time in my in the first year. I, I devoted a lot of time. I worked really hard. It was really important for me uh, to show my peers uh, how how much I value this job and how serious I take it, but also learn from the attorneys who were here before me. Um, my advice would be that win or lose, it's worth it to engage in the process, in the mock trial process, because you're going to come out at the end, whether you're first or last, with a deeper appreciation for what we do, more knowledge than you started out with, and you're going to have an opportunity to interact with attorneys and staff members and paralegals and the wonderful people that we have working here that you normally don't have the opportunity to interact with. So there's no negatives whatsoever. Um, so the fact that you're able to combine it at the end with the podcast, I don't know if you remember this. It was my suggestion at the end of the first year that we kind of overlap the podcast with Mock Trial. So oh. I'm really happy to see that it's still persisting and still working because I love the podcast and I love Mock Trial. So I'm very, very happy to see both flourishing. Well, uh, you know, certainly call me out on that because I for, I forgot uh, that it was your idea because I actually think it's one of my favorite prompts because it kind of brings everything together. And, uh, you know, it really showcases the talent at all levels that we have. So uh, for all of our internal teammates that are listening, uh, what a great way to kind of end that off. Uh, we look forward to next month's uh, finals. Uh, but uh, for Joseph Melchioni, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.